Good morning and welcome to Coffee Talk Podcast. This is your host, Ann Markin. Today we have a very special guest, Dr. Seth Dukes. Dr. Dukes is a faculty at Loma Linda University and the medical director for AMR. Thank you for coming in and talking with us today. Thanks for having me, Ann. It's a pleasure. So what else are you doing or a part of? I've seen you working in different areas of our system. Um, let's see. Besides uh, Loma Linda, I also work part-time at Riverside University uh, in their emergency department. Um, and then along with um, working with AMR, um, I've also had the pleasure to work with uh, City of Riverside uh, Fire Department, uh, Morongo Fire Department, Saboba Fire Department, and uh, and then, of course, uh, working with um, ISIMA, um on their MAC and RIMSA on their PMAC. Wow, that's awesome. So you work in multiple capacities and in different areas. So you're definitely a good person to talk to about our system and what we're trying to do. Um, with working in so many different areas, I'm sure you've seen kind of across the board, we've looked at uh, working at cardiac arrest and this new emphasis on cardiac arrest. They're saying, you know, high quality CPR is the name of the game. And they're even going back and doing training with us. Um, why do you think it's important for us to refocus on that? I'm sure as a physician in the ED, you see a lot of cardiac arrest patients come in all the time. This is truly an EMS um, disease or process or even problem, if you will, uh, and yeah. right in the name, out-of-hospital cardiac arrest. So. I would, I'd love nothing more to than to see that our pre-hospital management of cardiac arrest to be um, superior than hospital management. Uh, I have friends across the country who, um, I was at a, a teaching conference and she was talking about how, you know, uh, as she was talking how it's sad in her ER, how her patients get better care of their cardiac arrest in the pre-hospital system than they do in the ER because they don't even have end title in their oh, wow. ER. And you know, she's like, it's crazy. We're trying to fix all that. And so uh, I'd really love our system to be at that high functioning of a level that um, our best CPR is in the pre-hospital. Uh, yes. And I think we can get there. It's just going to take time. Um, and right. both really paying attention to the data and what all the studies are showing us how to perform the best um, resuscitation that we can of these patients. That's awesome. Thank you. So what are some of the things that you're looking at more specifically with what we can do? As medics, we're always trying to figure out what can I do physically to make patient outcomes better? What are some of the things you think we can do? specifically um, CPR, it's all about getting that heart restarted. And what it really boils down to in the end is kind of the gasoline that, that runs the muscle of the heart, if you will, and that's called ATP. Um, right. And uh, this is the energy source that gets, these, um, gets the heart going. And what happens in cardiac arrest is, you know, the the heart stops beating, it starts, stops getting that blood flow through the coronary arteries to the heart muscle, and then all of a sudden the heart muscle starts burning through its reserves of its ATP, and then it'll, it loses the phosphate bond, it goes down to ADP and so on, and it's all about trying to build up that ATP again to get the heart restarted. And the best way that we have learned thus far in the data to do this is good coronary perfusion. Um, so that's where the good, high-quality CPR gets in. And so the heart itself um, gets 
perfused during diastole or during the relaxation phase, not the actual compression, but the upstroke of the CPR. Right. And so that's where, you know, we get into you need good compression to get volume out of the heart, but you need a good upcoil relaxation to let the heart fill. But also during that filling process is when blood flows through the coronary arteries to the heart muscle itself. And and it's all about coronary perfusion pressure that gets to the heart muscle, that delivers the oxygen needed so that the heart can rebuild its ATP stores so that hopefully the heart can restart again. And I know it's a, it's, it's several moving pieces, but um, that's where this this need for high-quality CPR comes in. And Have you been seeing a lot of uh, changes or discussions about compression fraction ratio? Our mechanical CPR devices is another topic. Like we've had them for a few years now, and we were still using them the way we were doing CPR, where we would turn them off for this or we turn them off for that. Um, so even with that, we're hearing, "Hey, keep it going. Don't turn it off," uh, because we decreased that perfusion that you were talking about. That um, the chest recoil and good compression fraction ratio is so important for us as we move forward to make sure we have good perfusion and cellular respiration. Right. So, and and that's the whole thing about the uh, one. I mean, when we're doing compressions, we should never be stopping compressions. Um, almost to the point where you know it's nice when you can have the see-through monitors to look at rhythms. Um, I know we got to stop every now and then so we can check for a pulse check, but that stop should just be a matter of a second. I, I mean, the shorter the better. If you can get it done in you know three, four seconds, perfect, and then get right back on there. Right. Um, and again, because what we have found with the data when you're when you're looking at uh, pressures within the coronary arteries uh, from swine models that have been done is uh, it only takes somewhere in between 5 to 10 seconds of stop time from your compressions and you lose all that coronary perfusion pressure that you had gained in those two minutes of compressions. Wow. It takes a while to ramp up that pressure. Um, so it's kind of a, it's a slope, if you will, if you look at the graph. It's not a sudden, you know, as soon as you start, it's not like the pressure shoots way up. Right. It takes time to build that pressure, pressure, pressure. And after those two minutes, you finally start getting there. You're building this pressure, and then if you stop for 10 seconds, you lose everything that you just worked for the last 10 minutes. Um, wow. So that's why it's so vital. You know, should it be a two-minute pulse check? Should it be a five-minute pulse check? And in my opinion, you try to go as long as you can, um, and you use your other resources around it. If you have see-through CPR and that you can see that there's some kind of rhythm developing, and you see that the end title has – uh, significant jump that may clue you in that there's some kind of perfusion going on. And then it'll be right. like, okay, maybe we should take a look. And, we're, and everybody be on the same page and be like, you have, you're going to check the groin, you're going to check, you know, the carotid. You stop it for as short as possible, a few seconds. Everybody looks at each other. Is there a pulse? No. Okay, turn it right back on. Or if there is a pulse, great, stop. And then it's all about the continuing the resuscitation so you don't lose the ROS that you have gained. And uh, so for those of us that actually get ROSC in the pre-hospital setting, what are some of the key things that we can do when we get ROSC that are like pivotal in that overall outcome for the patient? Um, so uh, whenever, you know, you get ROSC, the, the first thing I'm concerned about is, first of all, is the rhythm. What does it look like? Um, do I have a nice narrow rhythm? Uh, do I have a wide complex rhythm? 
and that kind of excuse me on, on a few things. So if I if I have a nice narrow rhythm and it's a good rate, you know, let's say I'm 70, 80, even 100, 100, 120, I can live with all that. Um, I'm saying, okay, good, next, what's the blood pressure? Um, and so if they're a little hypotensive, then you're worried that they're going to re-arrest, and this is where we can get into our push-dose epi um, and start getting that on board and start bringing that pressure up um, so we can keep them from re-arresting. Uh, going back, if it's a wide complex rhythm, next question is, there's something else that predisposes this person to cardiac arrest? In other words, right. is a dialysis patient, do you see a fistula on them or they have a HD catheter in the chest and you see this white complex, you should be thinking there's probably some hyperkalemia involved here. Um, in that case, then we're talking, you know, calcium and bicarb to try to help shift that potassium so they don't re-arrest again. That sounds like something that's pretty straightforward as far as identifying that rhythm early, making sure you have a good handle on their perfusion. Um, I know uh, we've just been training on push dose epi, which is a new protocol for us, and we're very excited. It helps us, but it does take some adjustment as we switch over from other vasopressors um, we've used in the past. Some of the things that we've heard um, in the past about you know, a BLS airway versus an ALS airway. Um, can you speak to the process, the mental process, of when it's important to innovate, uh, whether it's earlier or later, or why we should assess whether we need to do an ALS airway if a BLS airway is working? Great question, Ann. Loaded question. And uh, it's very important because the, the data that's coming out now is really kind of pushing us in a different direction than what we've been used to. And this is, uh, it's growing pains. And as we learn more, we need to adjust our clinical practice. So I agree with everybody. You know, I was younger in my younger years, you know, you were so excited at cardiac arrest. You're like, does it have a tube yet? Yes, no, it doesn't have a tube. We're going to put a tube in. You get so excited right. about intubating. <laughs> Yes. And um, because it's cool, right? We all think it's cool. Yeah, we get to do this thing. And we all had this assumption, yeah, I'm doing this thing, and it's also helping the patient. And then, unfortunately, right. we do these studies, and we're finding out, you know, hold up a second. Um, so uh, just briefly, just to skim over some of the kind of the, the top hitters, um, kind of one of the – there's a CARES registry study where they went back and looked at over 10,000 patients who are in out-of-hospital cardiac arrest, adults, non-traumatic and they looked at those who got ROS, what kind of airway they got. Um, specifically, did they, were they intubated? Did they mm. receive a supraglottic airway? And 88% of the supraglottic airways were king airways. And, um, or was it just a BLS airway? And basically right. what they found was um, if you were intubated, uh, about 6% of those people um, um, survived. If wow. uh, you get a, um, a supraglottic airway, again, the majority being king airway, is about 5%, so a little less. But if you had a BLS airway, it was about 18%. Wow. Um, so it wasn't even close. You know, it's over three times better um, to have had a BLS airway than to have had any kind of advanced airway. Wow. And there's some questions with the study about, you know, was the arrest witnessed by EMS providers and who had shockable rhythms and who didn't and um, there were a little more uh, as far as ones that were witnessed by EMS providers, as far as the rest witnessed by EMS providers, that was higher in the BLS group, a little bit, um, and also the same thing as shockable rhythm. So we would expect those two patient populations to do better. Uh, but since then, there's also been multiple studies, and 
uh, one of the studies uh, being the um, Henry Wang study that looked at um, intubation versus King Airway. Um, in their study, they, list, they listed as a laryngeal tube, but it was specifically the King Airway, and they looked at those two side by side. But if you look at the, in the end, when they looked at all the results, they also had a group of those who just got BVM, um, even though they were supposed to get one of the two, but for some reason they only got BVM. And uh, right. when you looked at that data, it showed the exact same thing. And that was a randomized controlled trial. And the BVM group um, more than double uh, did better than both the intubation and the King Airway group as far as survival. And uh, there's been other studies on top of that. I won't bore you with all of them. But it's the, the data is starting to look really good for a BVM as compared to any other kind of um, procedure for the airway. And I get it. It's not fancy. It's not sexy. You know, everybody likes okay. to get a tube. But personally, it's made me change my practice that I don't rush into intubating these cardiac arrests. If I have a good compliant uh, BLS airway, that is good enough for me. Now, uh, I wouldn't say it's the end all because you can't anticipate every scenario that you may run across when you're working at cardiac arrest. Right. Uh, there may be a reason that they need a more advanced airway, and I can't give you all of them, but, you know, if it was a firecracker to the mouth or something, they blew off their lower jaw, you're not going to be able to bag that. There would just be way too much of a leak. Or, uh, uh, you know, a lot of people say, right. well, there's copious amounts of vomit everywhere. I would at least first try to suction. Uh, but obviously, if it keeps filling up, then okay, all right, maybe it needs an advanced airway. Um, right. Another one would be like an esophageal varicy hemorrhage, where it's just continuous amount of yeah. blood that's coming up, and there's no way you're going to be able to bag through the blood. The last one I had a few years ago, that it was rough, and ended up, you know, and intubation is a whole other disaster because you couldn't mm -hmm. see anything because it's just full of blood. We ended up digitally intubating the patient, so... Um, that one takes a little more risk, a little, a little, because you're sticking your fingers down their throat, and you mm -hmm. hope they don't bite down on your hand if they wake up suddenly, blah blah blah. But um, right. either that or it's those are a mess. And again, those are far, far, far uh, between and very rare scenarios. But sorry, again, back to airway. BLS is, as far as the studies are starting to show, is significantly better um, now. Um, I, there's still room for intubation, and uh, what I do is after we get ROSC, uh, if the patient's not breathing on their own, I say, you know, this patient needs to be intubated. We need to control this airway. Um, so there is a perfect time still for intubation. It's just uh, right now my personal practice is I wait till after I get ROSC. That sounds like a good plan. And for us, because we get ROSC doesn't mean it's not an option if we have quite a distance to a receiving facility. I know you probably have those discussions with paramedics at different departments and agencies that you work with that are in areas where geographically it takes longer to get to a receiving facility. And you could even make, you know, even if we're in, let's say, you know, we're inside the city of San Bernardino and you're working on cardiac arrest and even though, you know, you get this ROSC and now you get to decide, I don't know if you're closer to, you know, which STEMI receiving facility, be it Loma Linda or St. B's or wherever. Right. Um, but uh, even if, you know, after you get ROSC, I, I I still urge don't just hurry up and pack up and go because you need to stabilize that patient still. So, um, right. you know, don't be there forever. It's, there's got to be a delicate balance. But get that blood pressure under control. Get that airway under control. If you feel that BVM is working great, then that's fine. Uh, but, you know, if 
if you've got everything under control and you feel you can get the intubation in a reasonable amount of time, I'm okay with that too. Um, But uh, the studies have shown during the act of CPR, the BVM group just does significantly better at this time. That's awesome. Thank you so much for calling in and talking with us about CPR and a larger focus on high-quality CPR. I think it's really important that we continue to focus on that moving forward. And I've always loved uh, being able to give someone back to their family. It's only happened a couple of times where I've actually been able to meet patients that we were able to save. And it's always a good feeling to know that we gave our patient their best chance. So all the stars have to align, right, for that to happen. But if I came in contact with that patient um, and the way that I did, and I did what made me, not made me feel best, but what was best for the patient based on what the current studies are saying, what the data is showing, what our policies and protocols are, and that paired with the training and my experience, bringing something to that patient uh, that gave them their best chance to get back to their family as close to the way they were before it happened. Um, That's always been my goal. So before we go, um, if someone wanted to learn more about what you talk about in your lectures, is there a place they can check yeah. in on you? Sure. Um, oh, and I was going to say, and you hit it perfectly. I mean, when we talk about changing things, we're all doing this based off the data because we're trying to do the best thing for our patients. Um, and luckily, we have great researchers throughout this country and other countries that are doing these studies trying to figure out what is the best thing for our patients. And so... Um, I appreciate that perspective. You know, we're trying to save as many of our patients as we can, and this yeah. is what's showing what works for them. And as far as um, uh, people wanting to come, uh, hear some of these lectures and ask questions and see the studies on the big screen and go from there, I lecture pretty much monthly at uh, different uh, AMR um, regions. So I just lectured uh, last week at Victorville, and um, awesome. I think next month, see, next month's August, I'll be at Redlands in August. And so I think the easiest way, if, if you're interested, you can reach out to the CES specialists of the different um, divisions and um, see when they're, uh, what they're called, their mega CE days. And, okay. Uh, I'll be lecturing at those. So right now, currently, I am doing um, airway management and out-of-hospital cardiac arrest. It's about an hour lecture where we go through all, you know, the different devices and the data and kind of awesome. let everybody see it, uh, what's out there. And then the next um, round, I don't know when I'll start the next lecture series, but the next one's going to be on the science of CPR, which will be very um, similar to the lecture that I gave at uh, CFED with the Resuscitation Academy. Uh, awesome. A, a less airway and more actual compressions and medications and all that. Well, that sounds awesome. I'm looking forward to hearing more about that, too. Um, And I'll be sure to check in with the CES specialist at AMR. Maybe I can get on that roster. Thanks so much for coming by and sharing with us your knowledge on high-quality CPR. And we hope to hear from you in the future. I hope you come back again. It sounds like you have some more things to talk about. Thank you so much, Anne. Appreciate it. Bye.